Ezekiel chapter 15. Ezekiel chapter 15. We're going to look at chapter 15 and 16 tonight. Chapter 15 is only eight verses, so it's, it's really short, and it, it really leads right into chapter 16. But the title tonight is God's Great Love for the Useless Vine. God's Great Love for the Useless Vine. Let's go ahead and read chapter 15. Like I said, it's, it's eight verses, so we'll read the, the whole chapter. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it is whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, and they will go out from one fire to another fire and shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. So in chapter 15, the vine is a figure that's found often in Scripture. In John chapter 15, Jesus compared himself to a vine and his disciples are the branches in the vine because we depend totally on him for life and fruitfulness. And Jesus said, without him, we can do nothing. Revelation 14 verses 17 through 20 speaks of the vine of the earth, which is a symbol of corrupt Gentile or heathen society at the end of the age, ripening for the judgment of God's wrath. But the figure of the vine is more often applied to the nation of Israel. And Ezekiel will even bring the figure of the vine into his parable about the shoots or the new growth from the vine in Ezekiel chapter 17. And when you study these texts that I mentioned above, where, uh, again, the vine applies mostly to Israel, uh, you learn that Israel was just a common vine. Just a common vine when God planted her in the promised land. But because of God, because of his blessings, he increased, her, uh, increased and prospered her. During David's reign in the early years of Solomon, the vine was a sweet-smelling aroma of God. It was fruitful, and it was a good witness to the Gentile or heathen nations. Uh, and they were a good witness about the blessings of God, the wonderful God of Israel. But Solomon brought idolatry into the nation. And the kingdom was then divided. And the Jewish people began to produce wild grapes instead of fruit for God's glory. Later on, the kings of Israel and Judah worshipped idols. And they took part in the wicked practices of their neighbors who were idol worshippers. And God allowed the Gentiles to invade the land and eventually destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And the holy vineyard... God's vineyard was defiled and destroyed. Ezekiel's part in the story of the vineyard is to point out that the vine is worthless if it doesn't produce fruit. What good is a, is a tree or a vine that you plant that's to produce fruit? 
you plant an apple tree, you're hoping for apples. An orange tree, orange tree. You know, a vine, grapes. But if it doesn't pr produce any fruit, what good is it? And that's the, the point that, that Ezekiel is making. Israel was God's chosen vine, and it was to produce godly fruit. In other words, to be a light, to be a witness to the nations around them. But they, they weren't. They became like the heathen nations around them that they were to witness to, that they were show, to show the light and the goodness of God. And so, again, Ezekiel's going to point out their uselessness. Again, if a tree becomes useless, you can at least cut it down. Like the trees in the forest, you can at least cut it down, and you can make something useful out of the wood. But what can you make out of the wood of a vine? Ezekiel says you can't even make a peg out of the wood. So it's only good for one thing, fuel for the fire. Good for firewood. If the wood was useless before it was thrown into the fire, it's even more useless after it's been burned and ruined by the fire. So Ezekiel saw the nation's first test of the fire in 605 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar took the temple treasures to Babylon along with some of the best young men like Daniel. And then in 597 B.C., there was a second group of exiles. And Ezekiel was one that was among them. So the fire was getting hotter. The siege of Jerusalem started in 588 B.C., and then the fire began to rage. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and took thousands of Jewish captives to Babylon. So the vine, it says, was burned at both ends and in the middle. In other words, it was totally destroyed. The residents, those living in the holy city, definitely went from the fire, which was the invasion of their, of their nation, and assault to the literal fire of destruction. They were, they were attacked and then ultimately destroyed. Then the Babylonians burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all of its precious possessions. We, we who are the branches in Jesus Christ, the true vine. We need to take this lesson here very seriously. Because if we fail to abide in Jesus Christ, that is, if we fail to remain or to stay in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we lose our spiritual power. And we will wither. And we won't produce fruit for His glory. And the fruitless vine is then cast aside and eventually burned. In John 15, 6. Now, this may not mean condemnation in the lake of fire. But again, we will be cast aside, put on a shelf, and not be good for anything for God's glory. The figure of the burning branch is a picture of a worthless life, a life that is useless to God. God did not save us to sit. He did not save us just to cruise right on into heaven. He saved us to serve, to be a witness to the dark nation around us, to the, to the garbage that's going on in our society, to be a witness to those, to be fruitful, and again, to bring glory and honor to God. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, this was his prayer, Lord, let me not live to be useless. Let me not live to be useless. May that be the prayer of all of us. God, God use me. Don't let me look back in my life as a Christian being you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, 50 years of Christian, whatever it might be, and say, man, all I did was go to church. I, I, I didn't serve you, Lord. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't used to bring glory to you or to the kingdom of God. Now moving into chapter 16. 
Chapter 16 is a long chapter. But chapter 16 has some of the most graphic language found anywhere in the Bible. It's addressed to the city of Jerusalem, but it refers to the entire nation. And through the spiritual history of the Jews, from their birth, which was God's call to Abraham, through their marriage, which was God's covenant with the people, and up to their spiritual prostitution was when they went into idolatry, and then the sad consequences that followed, which was their ruin and captivity, the Lord takes his wife to court, in a sense, and testifies of her unfaithfulness to him. And at the same time, the Lord is answering the complaints of the people that, Lord, you didn't keep your promises when you allowed the Babylonians to invade the land. But you see, God did keep his covenant. God always keeps his covenant. He always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. It was Israel who broke her marriage vow to the Lord, which in turn broke God's heart and brought Israel's chastening. But as we read chapter 16, we can't just focus on the dark background of Israel's wickedness, but also on the bright light of God's love and his grace. As Paul said, when, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So let's begin in chapter 16 now with verses 1 through 14. Here we see Israel experiences a great love in verses 1 through 14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your birth and your nativity, or place of birth, are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord or umbilical cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes you know, or warm clothing. No, no, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. Notice, but God says, when I passed by you and saw you in this condition, I saw you struggling in your blood. I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew and matured and you became very fruitful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine, fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. You know, in the first verses there, you see what bad shape they were. When they were naked, they were, they were just in, in poor shape. And then God passes by and he sees them and he, 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 and he puts his love on them. The call to Ezekiel in verses 1 through 14, was very short, but very important. 
the word, son, the word son of man refers to Ezekiel. It shows the lowliness of the preacher. Son of man is a title that doesn't flatter Ezekiel. It points to his humanity. He's just a man. He's just a son of man. But God can use anyone. He can use a son of man. He can use a man or woman if, if they are yielded to the Lord, if they're surrendered to him. You don't have to be somebody special, somebody big time or, 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 or educated or an intellect or anything of that nature because God does the work. You don't have to be anybody special to be called by God to a high duty. You only have to be obedient. That's important, obedience. Secondly, the title Son of Man refers to the authority of his call. In verse 1, the call of duty came from the Word of God. That gives Ezekiel authority for anything because he was called of God. He was representing God. He was God's spokesperson. Ezekiel wasn't going out on his own. He wasn't doing any of this on his own. What he was telling the people wasn't his own words. He was doing what the Word of God told him to do. And again, a great example of what we're to do as believers. That's why we have the Word of God. To re it reveals who God is. It, it, it lets us know what God wants of us. And we're to obey that. That's the importance of the Word of God. And more important is obeying what God wants us to do, what He tells us to do. Ezekiel was to preach to Jerusalem so that they would know their, uh, her abominations. That, that is so said she would know her sins. And Ezekiel's preaching was to be clear. He was to cause Jerusalem to know what they had done that displeased God. Ezekiel was not to cloud his message. Like many messages are clouded today. You know, the, the pastor, the preacher beats around the bush. He's not clear about what the Bible's saying because he doesn't want to offend anybody. He, does, he wants everybody to go home happy and, and feeling good about themselves. Well, the Word of God doesn't do that. The Word of God, it, it, it tells us who we really are, that none are good, that all have gone astray. There's none good but Jesus Christ. And it's to bring us to that place where we recognize, you know what? You know, Lord, you're right. I, you know, I need Jesus. You know, I, I need to be convicted. I need to repent. So again, he was to let them know. He was, Ezekiel was to let Jerusalem know what their sin was and how disgusting it was to God. Israel is pictured here as an unwanted child. You know, in the earlier verses, a child that was, you know, the umbilical cord wasn't cut. There was, there was still the, uh, the, all the stuff on them from the birth, and, and they, weren't, they weren't dressed in warm clothing. So it's a picture of an unwanted child, abandoned and left to die. He said in verse 7, you were naked and bare. But then God said, I passed by and I saw you. It says, and the Lord rescued them and, 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 and they became his wife, his bride. Now, many Jews were very proud of their heritage and they called the Gentiles or those who weren't Jews, they called them dogs. But the Lord reminded the Jews, his people, that they descended from Amorites and Hittites and that their great city of Jerusalem was, was once inhabited by Jebusites, again, Gentiles. And it wasn't until the time of David that Jerusalem belonged to the Jews and became the capital of the nation. And actually, their highly respected one who they revered big time, their, their ancestor Abraham, he was an idol-worshiping pagan at one time. 
when God graciously called him. And so, you know, there goes, you know, so much for their national pride. But the parents of the newborn child that are mentioned here in the first part of, of, of verses 1 through 14 didn't even, wasn't even given humane treatment that every baby deserves. You know, Ezekiel said, hey, they, God said they didn't even cut the umbilical cord. They didn't wash the child. They didn't rub her skin with salt or even wrap her in clothes for her protection. Now, rubbing newborn babies with salt at birth in biblical times symbolizes that the baby would be raised to have integrity and honesty. And it's also possible that this practice of rubbing babies with salt cleaned the infant because salt is a disinfectant that prevents infection. So the significance of rubbing a newborn child with salt is to indicate that the child would be raised to have integrity and to always be truthful. We owe the safeguarding of our infants' lives to the natural pity and compassion that the God of creation, the God of nature, has put into the hearts of parents and nurses towards newborn children. But the, but the people had no pity or compassion. They threw her out, this baby, into the field and exposed her to the elements, verse 5 says. But when the Lord passed by, it says, he saw the helpless baby. He took pity on the helpless baby and he saved her. By the power of his word, he gave that baby life. In verse 6, he said, live, live. And this was totally an act of God's grace. The God of, glo of, glo uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Not because he deserved it or, des you know, or, or earned it, but because of God's great love and grace like he's done to all of us, for all of us. So the baby grew, verse 7 says, and became a young woman ready for marriage. But would any man want a young woman who was forsaken by her own parents? By now Israel was a slave in the land of Egypt. So the Lord would have to redeem her. God wanted Israel for himself. So it says in verse 6 and verse 8, he said, I passed by you again and I claimed you for myself. He, claimed, he said, you are mine. You are going to be my bride. And when a man would spread his garment over a, a, a marriageable girl, that meant they were engaged. We see that in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. He did deliver them from bondage. God did deliver them from bondage. And at Sinai, God entered into a marriage covenant with the people of Israel. And once again, when that happened, it says the Lord cleansed her. In verse 8, again, speaking about this infant, which is symbolic of Israel. The Lord cleansed her, washed her, with, clothed her with beautiful, <clears throat> expensive garments and, that were made for a queen. During King David's reign and during Solomon's early years, Jerusalem was definitely a queenly city. And Israel was a prosperous, a, a prosperous kingdom. And as long as Israel, Jehovah's wife, obeyed his word and kept his covenant, God blessed her abundantly, just as he promised her. He gave her healthy children. He gave her fruitful flocks and herds. He gave her abundant harvest and protected her from disease, disaster, and invasion from the enemy. Like it says in Ephesians, when Paul talks about the husband being the protector and the provider, you see God doing the same thing here. He's to be the protector and the provider of his wife, his bride. And there wasn't one word of the covenant 
that the Lord did not keep. Again, showing the trustworthiness of God's word. God keeps his word. It's trustworthy. It's dependable. You never have to doubt what God says. And then, because of what God did for Israel, man, her reputation spread all over the land about the goodness of the God of Israel. During Solomon's day, foreign rulers used to come to listen to him. They wanted to see what this God of Israel was all about. Now in verses 15 through 34, after what God did in verses 1 through 14 and took her and made, him, you know, made, made her his and did all of these wonderful things for her, now in verses 15 through 34, Israel, in spite of what God had just done, committed a great sin. Look at verses 15 now through 34. Now he says, but you, you know, after all that he had just showed what he had done, he said, but you trusted in your own beauty and you played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and you adorned and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and you covered them and you set my oil and my incense before them. Also my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey, which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense. That is talking about the idols. You set them before the idols with sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children? Notice what God says about their children and our children. They're his children. They're his children. We are given the, the, the awesome responsibility of training them up and raising them in the, the word of the Lord that one day when they go out on their own, you know, they have that foundation. And that they will be a godly seed and be a godly witness to those around them. He says, you have killed my children, offering them up by causing them to pass through the fire. And in all your abomination and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe to you, woe to you says the Lord God, and that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred or hated. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, <clears throat> and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea, and even you were not satisfied." How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. 
You erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high place in every street. Yet you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. In other words, you weren't like the typical harlot. You didn't, you didn't take payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband and you pay them. In other words, men make payment to all the harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers. You paid them to be their, your lovers. And you hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. Like I said, what all the wonderful things that God did for Israel in verses 1 through 14, they now went out and just gave it to the idols. The beautiful clothes that I gave you, you used them to clothe your idols. The food and all the things, the golden, you used it to worship your idols. You forgot about me. The fame that I made you famous because of the God that I am, you've now become famous because of, uh, you, you took that fame and, and became proudful and boastful that it, was, that it was all you're doing. That it was all you're doing. When Israel became prosperous and famous, she forgot the Lord. And, you know, many times we do the same thing. You know, God blesses us, man, where things are going smooth or going well. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, everything, nothing, everything could be, you know, nothing could be better for me. And, and, and then we say, and then we tell, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's, it, you know, I did this and, you know, it's because of my wisdom or whatever it might be. You, you take the glory instead of saying, Lord, thank you. I'm enjoying what my life right now because you've been so good to me and prefer what you're doing for me. And it had nothing to do with me. It's all the Lord. And so the Lord had blessed them with great wealth. He made Israel who she was. And then she started to use God's generous gifts for worshiping idols. Like the heathen nations around her who didn't know better. What's sad is that you expect that from the heathen who don't know God. You don't expect that kind of behavior from God's people who... who supposedly know God. But the heathen nations around her who didn't know better, Israel worshiped the creation <clears throat> rather than the creator, and she left her husband God for false gods. Israel just didn't commit adultery once in a while, as wicked as that is. She became a professional prostitute. God says, you weren't like the other prostitutes. You went looking for lovers. They weren't coming looking for you. And, and you paid them. You paid them to sin with you. She took the same treasures and blessings that God generously gave to her and, and, and dedicated them to making and worshiping idols. The jewels, the garments, her food, even her children were used to worship idols. They gave their children to, 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 the, to, to burn in the fire of, of the god Molech. I mean, this god was a metal god that was hollowed on the inside. And they'd put this wood in the, in the center of it. They'd stoke this fire. And this god Molech had his hands outstretched like this. And when those hands got red hot, they would put their children in the arm of that god. Demonic. What else can you call it? You know, she took the treasures of God, and, and what's the most blessed treasure we can have is our children. And, and they, they worshiped idols with them. Idolatry was, was Israel's habitual sin. 
And it wasn't cured until the nation went into captivity for seven years, 70 years in Babylon. But the nation practiced another kind of idolatry when she trusted other nations to protect and to defend her rather than trusting in the Lord God, her husband, who was to be her protector and provider. Israel not only borrowed the gods of other nations and abandoned the true and the living God, but she hired the armies of other nations to protect them instead of believing that the Lord God could take care of her. And, and I, you know, we do that a lot of times. You know, we get into a situation and, and the circumstances are so dire that we think, oh man, God can't even fix this. So you know what? I got to fix it. And so I, I go do something or I take an action that, that I think, you know, is going to solve my problem. When in reality, it just makes it worse. King Solomon made treaties with other countries by marrying the daughters of their rulers, thinking, well, you know, if, if my daughter is, is the daughter of, of a ruler of another nation, well, you know, we're going to be, we're gonna be uh, in-laws and we're going to have a relationship and, and they're going to help me out. This is what led him to idolatry by uh, you know, marrying daughters of, of heathen rulers. The Jews were especially tempted to turn to Egypt for help instead of confessing their sins and turning to the Lord as they were instructed to do. And instead of God's people humbling themselves and praying and seeking God's face and turning from their wicked sins, as 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says, they turned to heathen idols. The Jewish leaders used every possible way to ensure the help of Egypt. All the while, they were acting like common, uh, a common prostitute. They also went after Philistines and, and the Assyrians and even the Babylonians for help. They went to the enemy for help. But none of these partnerships succeeded. And the northern kingdom Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. Israel's pride and ungratefulness opened the door for her idolatry. Israel forgot how good the Lord had been to her. And Israel became, like we can do too, we can become more concerned about the gifts than the giver of the gifts. I want what the Lord has to give me. I just don't want the Lord. Moses warned them about these sins. He said, be careful. Don't forget about the Lord who's prospered you and who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You, need to, you, you have to fear the Lord your God and serve him. And when you take an oath, you must only use his name. You must not worship any other gods of the neighboring nations. But God's people didn't pay any attention to the warning. And believers today who live in the world and depend upon the world to take care of them, to meet their needs, they are committing adultery in a similar way as the Israelites. You see, the Lord wants and deserves our full and complete devotion. In verses 35 through 42 now, Israel suffered a great discipline because of what she had just done. Verses 35 through 42. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Notice, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers, and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely therefore I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, 
all those who you loved and all those who, who you hated, and I will gather them uh, from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy, and I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with swords, with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. So I will lay rest. So I will lay to rest my fury toward you, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be quiet and be angry no more. The Lord had been very patient with his people, and he is. He's very patient with us. And he warned them that their sins, your sins, would ruin them. But they continued to reject his word, and and they continued to persecute God's prophets that they sent preaching to them the word of God, and they continued to practice the the disgusting sins of their pagan neighbors. Many of the Jewish people were now in captivity in Babylon, and those that were left behind in Judah had been either killed uh, by the Babylonians, or they were in prison in Jerusalem waiting for the siege of Jerusalem to end. But the Jews shouldn't have complained to the Lord that he wasn't treating them fairly. We can never, we can never complain that God doesn't treat us fairly. You see, the people knew the conditions of the covenant they made with him. They knew the the words of the marriage vow. And he had already warned them so many times that judgment was coming. And their punishments are described as those of a prostitute an adulteress, an adulterer, because the nation had committed those same sins. According to the law, prostitutes were to be burned. Leviticus 21.9 and Genesis 38.24. Adulterers and adulteresses were to be stoned. Leviticus 20.10. Idolaters were to be killed by the sword and their possessions burned. Deuteronomy 13.12-18. God used the Babylonian army to carry out these judgments on the people of Israel. Verses 40-41 through here. And many Jews were killed by the sword, and the city of Jerusalem and the temple were ransacked and burned. Ezekiel gives a graphic description of the judgment of Israel, the prostitute. First, the Lord would name their crimes in verses 35 and 36 here. He said, because your filthiness was poured out on the heathen idols and exposed your nakedness in worshiping them. Israel disobeyed God's law, made idols of her own, and even sacrificed her children to them. Then the Lord announced their sentence in verses 37 through 42. He would call her lovers, which were heathen nations, to be her executioners. And they'd gather around her and they would see her nakedness. They would see her for what she really is. She would be publicly exposed as an adulteress and a harlot. And then the army... The enemy army would strip the city of Jerusalem, just like the convicted harlot was stripped, and then, de- and then they would destroy the city. Like adulterers and adulteresses, the people would be killed by, the, by stones, and like idolaters, they'd be killed by the sword, and like prostitutes, they'd be burned in the fire. The Jews knew all of these laws. They knew what the penalties were for breaking these laws, for disobeying God, and yet they still 
deliberately disobeyed the Lord and kept up their abominations, the things that God hated. And you know, it's amazing how many Christians do the same thing. They know the word of God. They know the penalties that are possible for breaking the word of God. And yet they will still deliberately disobey the Lord and keep up their, their, their heathenistic behavior. And then when God brings the judgment, oh God, why are you doing this to me? You better go back and look. Then in verse, let's read verses 43 through 47 now. God says, because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all of these things, surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all of your abominations. Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children, and your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister who dwells to the south of you is Sodom and her daughters. You did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all of your ways." So after describing their sins in the previous verses, the Lord then defended his sentence. He defended why he was bringing this judgment upon them in verses 43 through 52. He didn't just know what they had done, but he saw in their hearts why they had done it. And you know, there's nothing that we can do or think about that God doesn't know. He sees right into our hearts. He knows our thoughts before they even leave our mouth. He didn't just know what they had done, but he saw in their hearts why they did it. So in answer to the people's complaints, the Lord proved, hey, you deserved exactly what happened to you. God's judgment wasn't impulsive. He just didn't fly off the handle and, 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 and become vengeful. God waited a long time. He's long-suffering, the Bible says. They just refused to repent. So first, the nation had forgotten what the Lord had done for them, according to verse 43. And this was the same sin that Moses warned them to avoid in Deuteronomy 6.10. God remembered the devotion they showed in their early days of their commitment. He said, man, you guys, you were like a young bride loving your husband. But they didn't remember all of that, you know, uh, uh, all that, they had, that the Lord had done for them. When we forget to be thankful, we're in danger of taking credit for our blessing and failing to give God the glory that he deserves. Secondly, they failed to understand the terrible nature of their sins. The Jewish people were the best at quoting Proverbs and ancient sayings, even though they usually don't go deep enough to answer the need. Verse 44, you know, God said, like mother, like daughter. This is the feminine version of like father, like son. You know, another version is the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. In other words, the children inherit their parents' nature. So don't be surprised when they commit their parents' sins. The Jewish nation came from the Amorites and the Hittites, who were worshipers of idols. Immorality and idolatry ran in the family because Israel's sisters, Samaria and Sodom, they were well known for their godlessness. But since the Jews had the revelation of God's word, and they had enjoyed the blessings of God's goodness, that made what they did, that made their sins far more wicked than those of their sisters who didn't know God. 
If God judged Sodom and Gomorrah by sending fire and brimstone on them, and if he allowed the northern kingdom, Israel, to be captured by the Assyrians, then he would surely have to judge the people of Judah and Jerusalem if they didn't repent. But Judah and her sisters didn't take these other judgments to heart. They didn't, they didn't pay any attention to them. And to paraphrase verse 47, it says, he said, you not only walked after the ways and imitated their abominations, talking about the heathen, heathen nation, but you went beyond them and sinned even more than they did. Now in verses 48 through 52, we see God names the sins of Sodom, verses 48 through 52. He said, as I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw it. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by the abominations which you have done. You who judged your sisters, bear your own shame also because the sins which you committed, notice, were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced and bear your own shame because you justified your sisters. The people were proud and they were haughty. They ate well. They were idle. And they weren't concerned about the poor and the needy. They were guilty of detestable acts. And that may be referring to their homosexual lifestyle back in Genesis chapter 19. There were abominable sins of attitude and action. And, and sins of commission and omission. Sins that they did and sins by not doing what they should have done. And yet the people of Jerusalem and Judah, they were a lot guiltier than the people of Sodom were. When you read the other prophets, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, you hear them naming the sins of the people of Judah and warning them that judgment was coming. The people of Judah were twice the sinners as the people in Samaria when you compared them. The people of Judah made the citizens of Samaria and Sodom look righteous. I mean, what a terrible thing for God's chosen people to be accused of. You're worse than the heathens. That's basically what he's saying. You behaved and did worse than the heathen that doesn't know me. But is the church today any less guilty? Because members of local churches all over commit the same sins. We read about them in, or hear about them in the news. But the, again, it, it, it doesn't always get to the headlines. Congregations are being torn apart because of professed Christians who are involved in lawsuits, divorces, immorality, family disputes, crooked business deals, financial scandals, and a whole lot of other things that you see in the world. We see them happening in the church. That's why it's not surprising that those who don't know the Lord, they don't pay attention to the church. They don't pay attention to those who claim to be Christians and preach the word of God. They don't pay attention to our personal witness. Because they'll say, yeah, I knew a Christian one time and they, you know, they didn't behave any different than I did. Why should I listen to them? Why should I go to church? Why should I, you know, believe what they tell me? And then in verses 53, uh, uh, 53 through 63, and now let's close with those verses. Israel will experience a great restoration. Verses 53 through 63. When I bring back their captives, 
the captives of Sodom and her daughters and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comfort them or comforted them. When your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, returned to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters returned to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and of the daughters of the Philistines who despises you everywhere, who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you, notice, in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your vows and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. For I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord. Israel is going to experience a great restoration. The phrase here, he says, when I bring back their captives means restore their fortunes. I'm going to restore all that they had before. The captives in Babylon would be restored. They would return to the land. They'd rebuild their temple. God's goodness in allowing this to happen, man, it would make them ashamed and it would cause them to repent. When you read the prayers of Ezra and Daniel and the Levites who worked alongside Nehemiah, you see that there was still a godly remnant that humbly sought the face of God and they confessed their sins. But it's likely that this restoration that Ezekiel is talking about here in, verse, in chapter 16 is reserved for the end times. When Israel will see their Messiah weep over their sins and enter into his kingdom. Because you see, history does not record that there's going to be a restoration for Sodom and the cities that, that were in the plain that God destroyed. Nor for the kingdom of Syria, Samaria that was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. Ezekiel was about, writes about here an everlasting covenant according to verse 60 which indicates that this prophecy will be fulfilled in the end times. Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah 59. Later, Ezekiel will predict a reunion of Samaria, that is the northern kingdom, which was Judah, um, uh, Israel, and, and southern kingdom, Judah, under the kingship of the Messiah. And the Lord makes it clear that this restoration and reunion won't be on the basis of the covenant that was made at Sinai, but totally because of the grace of God. The Jewish people broke that covenant and they suffered for their disobedience. But nobody can be saved by keeping the law. It's only through the redemption provided in Jesus Christ on the cross that sinners can be forgiven and received into the family of God. It's only through Jesus Christ that one can be saved. So in closing, I'm almost done. There will come a time when God's people, Israel, will remember their sins and recognize God's goodness and grace, what he did for them on their behalf. Their mouths will be shut because of their conviction, and they'll be saved. You see, how can a holy God forgive the sins of rebels, Jews or Gentiles? How can God forgive the sins of any people? 
because of the atonement that he made on the cross when he gave his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The father sent his son to be the savior of the world, and that included the savior of Israel. Jesus not only died for the church and for the sins of the world, but he died for his people, Israel. One day, that new covenant will bring them, his people, Israel, the cleansing and forgiveness that only the blood of Christ can give. Father, we thank you so much for your awesome word, Lord. And Father, let us learn the powerful lessons, God, given in this chapter, Lord. Father, let us not be a useless vine, God. Let us not abuse the grace of God, the goodness of God, the favor of God. Let us not use it on worthless things, God. For we will reap the judgment, God. But Lord, 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 let us remember, Father, from where we came, how God saved us and wants to continue to move in our lives. So Father, may we, wherever we might be in our relationship with, with Jesus Christ this evening, God, if it's not where it should be, if I need to repent and confess my sins, may you do it tonight. And as it said in the last part of the chapter, be restored, be restored in the graces of God. So, Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.